From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, glaucoma as neurodegeneration and post-LASIK ectasia at the APAO. Insulin itself has a function to play in the survival and well-being of the retinal ganglion cells. First this. Want to learn about MACRA, MIPS, and running an excellent and efficient ophthalmology practice? You'll love iTalks Radio, the official podcast of the American Society of Ophthalmic Administrators. Let's get right down to the basics of MACRA. For those of you who are not familiar with this law, what is MACRA? MACRA does stand for the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act. iTalks Radio brings to ASCRS members, ASOA members, and even non-members practical information on human resources, government regulatory compliance, middle management, and productivity. Indulge at italksradio.org. That's E-Y-E-T-A-L-K-S radio.org. Italks Radio, the yang to my yin. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2018 Annual Congress of the Asia-Pacific Academy of Ophthalmology in Hong Kong. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Munib Faik discussing glaucoma as a neurodegenerative disease, and from Shazad Mian on post-LASIK ectasia risks. I'm here with Munib Faik. Munib, you gave a really, really interesting talk, and I, I particularly like the way that you framed things. So you introduced the, the idea of uh, glaucoma as a neurodegenerative disease. Let me have you sort of make the, the, the case for, for that, and then you can tell me what, what interesting role insulin plays in all of this. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, the basic idea is that glaucoma is uh, the most common form of neurodegenerative disorder. Uh, when we say most common, that would mean that it should be uh, in higher uh, uh, numbers present in the population. So most common is an easy thing to tell because there are 70 to 80 million people in the world suffering from glaucoma, while as there are only 35 million people suffering from Alzheimer's disease. So that makes it a mo- most common disorder. Whether it's a neurodegenerative disorder, we have uh, a lot of justification for that. Number one, if you start from epidemiology, the eye, if you start from embryology, the eye itself is the extension of diencephalon. There's a bulb extension which evaginates from diencephalon and forms the eye. It's like the brain inside out. That's number one. Number two, the optic nerve itself looks more like the central nervous system. It has, uh, the myelin itself is produced from the oligodendrocytes, which is not the case with other cranial nerves. It's encased in meninges, which is not the case with other cells. And optic neuropathies, uh, these peripheral neuropathies, do not affect the optic nerve. Well, it affects the other, all the other uh, cells. That's one thing. The other thing is that the retinal ganglion cells itself uh, are mostly present outside the uh, retina. The only cyton part of it is present inside the retina. The rest of the 80 to 90% of the cell goes all the way to the optic tracts to the lateral geniculate nucleus. That makes them really the retinogeniculate neurons. So if uh, glaucoma is defined as uh, the death of the retinal ganglion cells, that would define it as the apoptosis of the retinogeniculate neurons. That defines it as a neurodegenerative disorder rather than a peripheral eye ocular condition. 
Now, you make the case also of the important role that insulin plays in the in the health of uh, the uh, ganglion cells. And this is independent of the role that insulin's playing with with glucose. This is something that, that's that's totally totally different. Can I get you to sort of flesh this topic out for me? Yes, of course. Uh, uh, there is blood-brain barrier. So the insulin dynamics in the systemic part of the body is different from the insulin dynamics within the brain. Insulin is being taken up by the brain by a saturable mechanism. But there are papers which say that insulin in the brain is almost 10 to 100 times more in concentration as compared to the rest of the body. That means insulin has a special function to play in the brain. And with respect to retinal ganglion cells, insulin is anti-apoptotic, it's anti-inflammatory, and it prevents the accumulation of tau. That indicates that insulin itself has a function to play in the survival and well-being of the retinal ganglion cells, which indicates that insulin signaling deficit predisposes uh, a patient, a person, to glaucoma. That too in the brain compartment, the central nervous system compartment rather than the peripheral dynamics of the insulin. So this type of diabetes, if you, if you may call it a diabetes because it's insulin signaling deficit, is different from the type 1, type 2 that is found in the rest of the body. And Alzheimer's disease has already been called as diabetes type 3. So that would obviously call glaucoma as the diabetes type 4. That was really, really, really interesting. Now, you... You also make the uh, the important point of the role that intracranial pressure may have to do with glaucoma. Now, the, the, this is it's it's a topic that has vacillated in terms of its popularity, um, and it's also a very very difficult thing to 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 study. I mean, one one can't start doing lumbar punctures on uh, glaucoma patients. Um, can I get you to briefly discuss this, this topic with us too? Yeah, that's, that, that's an interesting thing. Like uh, when we talk of the intracranial pressure, it's like uh, cerebral spinal fluid being produced by the choroid plexus and it goes through those uh, spaces in the brain, this ventricles and goes down to the system and, and is being absorbed by the systemic circulation. But the truth is that it is very much similar to the intraocular pressure where aqueous humor being is produced by the ciliary muscles, it goes into the anterior chamber, takes a U-turn through the iris and comes up and is, is being taken through the Schnum's canal and into the systemic circulation. So these two portions that the ventricles inside the brain and uh, the other parts of cells, uh, other, other parts that, that is the uh, ocular tissue, so these two uh, are very much similar. Uh, but both the uh, both these compartments interact with each other where the shed the watershed is the real point of pressure would be the optic nerve head so the pressure intracranial pressure when it is increased it is going to put some pressure change the dynamics of the optic nerve head intraocular pressure is increased it's also again going to put some pressure on the optic nerve head so this strategic position is very important and i believe that there's a role of intracranial pressure intraocular pressure and interdependence of both of them it's not intraocular pressure isolated because we see normotensive glaucoma also that would mean that uh, intraocular pressure is not only the, su the only sufficient condition. However, there is a problem with this that we cannot go on lumbar punctures, but uh, indirect methods of imaging and I think uh, uh, tympanic membrane deflections have also been taken into consideration while studying. There are studies going on, but I believe uh, soon we may have some indirect non-invasive methods of measuring intracranial pressure. Plus, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not part of the controversy is, is that it's, it's not clear whether the... the um 
whether the intracranial pressure at at the site of the of the optic nerve, whether the, the, that fluid isn't loculated from the rest of the uh, brain, and what that has to do with with intracranial pressure, and whether it's fair to talk about a pressure height or not. But at any rate, if we buy into this this paradigm of um, of viewing glaucoma as a neurodegenerative disease, what does that mean to us therapeutically? How does this adjust our targets? Yes, that's, that's an interesting question. So once we, once we agree upon that there is a neurodegenerative component of glaucoma, that would bring us to diagnostic and therapeutic modules. So diagnostically, we may check a lot of things in the brain. We may check neurotrophins. We may, we may evaluate acetylcholine functions. We may do a lot of imaging studies of the visual cortex, of the lateral geniculate nucleus, and other things. There have been studies which say the temporal sulcus and, and in the inferior visual sulcus or also in, inferior sulcus of the visual uh, areas of occipital lobe are also involved in glaucomatous opti uh, optic neuropathy before any uh, vision loss occurs. That would mean that imaging technologies, imaging techniques would help us to predict glaucoma. So there has a there is a diagnostic role, and if it, that is the case, then neurorestorative strategies like brain stimulation, like transmagnetic transcranial magnetic stimulation, like electric brain stimulation may help. And there are studies which have shown that this helps. This this has helped, and there, there was a recent paper in uh, scientific reports which said that uh, that electrical brain stimulation leads to not only preservation of vision in glaucoma, but neurorestoration, the restoration of the vision in glaucoma, which is very important. Monique, this is really, really, really cool stuff. It's it's already a really complicated topic, and you've made it much more complicated. Uh, no, <laughs> That's my is, job. <laughs> but it is cool. It's really, really neat. And I I, I want to thank you for for bringing this 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 topic, this whole like vantage point to us, uh, and for being so very generous with your time with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm here with Shazad Mian. Shazad, one of the things about which we're concerned uh, when we uh, plan to do LASIK is whether uh, this is going to be one of the rare patients who has got post-LASIK ectasia. Unfortunately, the, 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 the situation doesn't come up that frequently, but it also doesn't come up totally randomly. And you make the point in, in your talk that there are patients who are at particular risk uh, for post-LASIK ectasia. Can I have you spell things out in a way that's going to make it safer for my own patients? Sure. So, as you said, the most important thing in managing post-LASIK ectasia is really trying to prevent it, and that requires recognizing signs of it on the examination as we're screening. Now, what's tough about this is that it's not a common condition, but it is it has devastating complications of losing best corrected vision in an otherwise uh, healthy eye that's able to see well. Uh, but on the other hand, we also want to make sure we recognize it to where we're not overly burdensome and patients who want to have refractive surgery can still have it. So th the important things to look for, the best data is for corneal imaging, especially topography and tomography, looking for signs of early ectasia with respect to inferior steepening or a relatively central steep cornea. Uh, and if you have tomography available, looking at posterior elevation maps are the most helpful things to look for in diagnosing or assessing ectasia early. Now, uh, one back in the in the dawn of time uh, when 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 LASIK first came out, when I was doing LASIK, um, one of the um, one of the things that we looked for was the residual tissue bed thickness. That is a concept that has been 
displaced now by uh, something called PTA introduced by Marconi Santiago. Can I get you to describe what PTA is and what the, 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 the difference is between PTA and residual bed thickness? Sure. So we know that the mechanism of ectasia after uh, LASIK is primarily related to biomechanical instability uh, and compromise of the strength of the cornea. And that is associated with uh, cutting a flap in the anterior cornea as well as ablating. So a combination of those factors are likely what's important. Now that's reflected in many different ways. It's reflected in the residual bed thickness. It's re reflected in the flap thickness. It's reflected in how much tissue we remove. Uh, and therefore, preoperative factors such as corneal thickness, uh, total corneal central thickness, uh, play a role and how, mu how much you're going to treat plays a role. So PTA, allows us to look at corneas uh, which do not have any other predisposing factors because we know patients who have otherwise normal topography and, and tomography can also develop ectasia. So this uses the flap thickness and the ablation depth combined together as a percentage of the total central corneal thickness to try to predict who's at increased risk. Uh, and uh, in the nomogram developed by Dr. Santiago, uh, it looks like if you have about 40% of tissue removal, that's again a combination of the flap thickness as well as the amount of ablation depth, uh, there is a 97% uh, sensitivity and a near 90% specificity to, uh, to predict uh, if somebody is going to be at increased risk for developing ectasia. So it provides a nice tool when corneal tomography and topography are otherwise normal. Just that when you describe what the what the, the, the risk factors are, PTA, all of these sorts of things, uh, what we're talking about is looking at a particular patient and the characteristics for that patient. Is there anything else uh, in, I don't know, the genetics of the patient, uh, we aren't doing gene testing, um, that may give us some clues as to whether someone is at a special risk? Sure. So. In otherwise normal appearing corneas and tomography, topography, one thing that we don't know is if uh, we are not catching them early enough to where they could develop uh, ectasia such as keratoconus or pellucid marginal degeneration. And th their uh, family history may play a very important role in that screening process. Now, the Randleman uh, ectasia scoring system or PTA do not take into account family history. Therefore, it's important to ask about family history. Uh, although the genetics of keratoconus have not been well worked out, but we know that there is a strong genetic component to this and various studies looking at corneal imaging and certainly from our own experiences we know when patients come in if you really push them on it they will often say that they have family members who wear contacts uh, although it's rare for them to really know if they have keratoconus so asking for a thorough family history can become a really important screening tool as well. Shazad I want to thank you for for, for bringing the, the, this uh, this this important, high, highly, highly relevant topic to us. Obviously, we now have a, a therapy uh, for ectasia that's corneal cross-linking, uh, but of course the, 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 the best treatment is not to get the problem in the first place, so it's you know, very relevant that we talk about risk factors, onset prevention, pound to cure, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, I want to thank you uh, especially uh, for being so very generous with your time with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Munib Faik comes to us from the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi, India, and also from the Department of Ophthalmology at the New York University School of Medicine in New York, New York. 
Shazad Mian is professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at the University of Michigan Kellogg Eye Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ask questions of Dr. Fike, Dr. Mian, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.